We now bring you the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast, featuring the late Dr. Harold B. Seitler, founding pastor of Tabernacle Baptist Church and Ministries in Greenville, South Carolina. And now, today's edition of the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. How many Bibles do we have in the service this morning? Would you lift them up and let me see them? Yeah, what a sight. Thank you so much. That's wonderful. Turn to the second chapter of the book of Genesis. That's right at the very front of your Bible, isn't it? Genesis chapter number two. I, I want to bring a message from this chapter today on the fall of Adam, why Adam took the forbidden fruit. Now, I want you also to turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy 2 and verse number 14. Put your finger there or your bookmark there. 1 Timothy 2 and verse number 14. And then I want you also to turn to Romans 5 and verse 14. Romans 5, verse 14. And put a marker there also. For the past few weeks, I've been speaking to you on some uh, types of the gospel and types of the Lord Jesus uh, in the uh, Bible. Uh, The study of typology is one of the most interesting studies that you'll ever make. In fact, it is the study of the Bible itself uh, beneath the surface, deeper study of the Bible itself, and nothing so fascinates the Bible student as the study of typology. Uh, We need to be introduced. If you're not familiar uh, with what typology is, we need to be introduced. If you've never had a course in Bible uh, typology, then I recommend you take your school for your Bible and turn to Matthew 13 and study the seven parables. And the school for your Bible has some wonderful footnotes Uh, in relation to the types in uh, the seven parables of Matthew 13. And then you can turn to Revelation chapter 2 and 3 and study the footnotes on the seven churches of Asia Minor. And those seven churches are a type of of seven periods in the history of the church since uh, Jesus founded the church down to this day. And that's a very interesting study. The Bible abounds with many tremendous types. And from these types, we learn the scriptures, we learn the Savior, we learn the way of eternal life, we learn the beneath the surface, deeper truths of God's word that you'd not ordinarily get by reading the Sermon on the Mount. And that's no reflection on the Sermon on the Mount. I guess one of the most profound uh, uh, declarations uh, or messages contained in the Bible would be the Sermon on the Mount. But I'm simply saying that these things go beneath the surface And the average casual reader would probably never see them except to be pointed out to them. I don't know what I would have done in my life had I not gotten a hold of a Schofield reference Bible. And the Schofield Bible introduced me many, many years ago to typology before I knew that there was a systematic Bible uh, system of theology called typology. I got introduced to it from the Schofield Bible. And I'd recommend that you study your, type, your footnotes uh, relative to the types in the uh, Schofield Reference Bible. Now, in, in 1 Timothy 2.14, I'm told clearly that Eve was beguiled, that Adam was not deceived. Now, that's very basic. If you don't understand the message that I bring it to you today, it's very uh, uh, essential that you recognize that Adam was not deceived. In the fall, Adam was not deceived. Eve was beguiled. Now that's not my idea. That's what I read in 1 Timothy 2.14. And if, you, uh, if your Bible is like mine, yours reads the same way. 
And if your Bible doesn't read that way, then you've got the wrong one. You probably got good news from modern man or the living Bible, and I don't recommend either one. I'd recommend you get rid of those to stay with a King James Bible. As far as I'm concerned, the best Bible in the world is a King James translation of the Bible. And so Eve was beguiled, not Adam. And then in Romans 5, 14, we're told also very clearly, and this is elementary and basic, if you don't understand the message, that the first man, Adam, is a type and figure of the second man, Adam. The first Adam in the Garden of Eden is a type of the second Adam in Gethsemane, or in his life. The first man, Adam, made out of the dust of the earth. The second man, Adam, made in a virgin's womb, are both types one of another. The first Adam in the garden is a type of the second Adam, the Lord Jesus, my Lord and my Savior. Now that's one typology we can be sure about because Romans 5, 14 tells me that. That the first Adam is a figure and type of the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now with those two verses in mind, I want to speak to you on why Adam took the forbidden fruit. The fall of Adam, why? Verse 15, Genesis chapter number 2. You have your Bible open? The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Now may I remind you at this particular point, there is no woman. The Lord God took the man. Adam is created out of the dust of the earth. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he has now become a living soul. Verse number 7 in the same chapter. But there is no woman. The woman comes later. God created the man. God formed the woman. God created the first Adam. God formed the bride. God created the second Adam. And God is forming the bride of the second Adam. And you know what the bride of the second Adam is? The church, the born again, is the bride of the second Adam. And we, like Eve, are being formed out of the side of of the second man, Adam, the Lord Jesus. In the Ephesian epistles, I'm told that we are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, Jesus. Me and you, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. And as the bride was taken from the side of Eve, you and I symbolically are removed from the side of our Savior, whose side was riven by uh, the Roman spear. Now God took the man, Adam, and put him in the garden. Now, nobody knows for sure where the garden was. I, in my mind, I find no difficulty accepting the fact that the garden probably was in Israel. If you ever go to Israel, you'll visit the Valley of Megiddo and marvel at its beauty under the curse of sin down through all these centuries. And you'll also visit the Jericho Valley and Jordan Valley, and you'll marvel at the beauty of Jericho and the Jordan Valley. It could have easily been, as far as I'm concerned, that the Garden of Eden was between Jericho and the Dead Sea. The lowest spot on the earth, to me that's significant. Uh, 1,300 feet under sea level is the Jordan Valley at the Dead Sea and the city of Jericho. A semi-tropical area, beautiful palm trees and flowers and all kind of fruit is produced in the Jordan Valley until this day. And that could have easily been the spot that God chose uh, to build the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, God put the first man, Adam, in that garden and commanded him to dress the garden and to keep the garden. That implies activity. Uh, you're, to, you're to enjoy the garden, you're to keep the garden, you're to dress the garden. Then the Lord God said in verse 16, commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. 
Now, in that, in that country, bananas, uh, the bananas are some of the most uh, tasteful you've ever enjoyed in your life. Uh, oranges in Israel are, are much like our oranges, except they have only one seed. And the, uh, the, the uh, rind is a little thicker than our uh, covers on our oranges, but uh, the fruit is simply unspeakable. Uh, the oranges are most delicious. The bananas are most delicious in Israel. And they raise many other fruit as well as those two that I mentioned. But God said, now of all the fruit of every tree in the garden, thou mayest freely eat. If you have one banana and you want a second, help yourself. If you eat one uh, orange and you want a second, help yourself. If you eat one apple and you want a second, help yourself. Thou mayest freely eat, Adam. And I believe that to be literal. God did not put Adam on a diet. He said, help yourself. You know, it's not, it's not the, uh, the, uh, the quantity, I think, sometimes that, uh, that the quality rather that hurts us in our food consumption, but it's the quantity. And we can eat all we want if we eat the right kind, but we eat their own kind of food sometimes and become sick thereby. But nobody ever gets sick eating bananas and apples. I never found anybody that didn't enjoy a good apple. I never learned anybody that didn't enjoy a good banana. Everybody loves bananas. I never found anybody that didn't enjoy a good orange. Thou mayest freely eat, Adam, help yourself of all the fruit in every tree in the garden. But, verse 17, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. Now here's the one prohibition. Uh, much license, much liberty. In the preceding verse, God said, thou mayest freely eat of every tree in all the earthly Eden, the earthly paradise. Thou mayest help yourself. And I'm not going to put you on any kind of restriction or diet. Just help yourself. But there's one prohibition. Now I see that in your life and in mine. In the Lord we have much liberty, much freedom, much joy. Uh, so many things that we can delight ourselves in and engage ourselves in. We have some prohibitions as a born-again believer. I'm prohibited from going to certain places. I'm prohibited in the Bible from associating with certain people. I'm prohibited in the Bible from engaging in certain things. Now the prohibitions in my life are so insignificant in comparison to the liberty and the license I have in the Lord until it's hardly worth my mention. A few things I cannot do, but oh, the multitude of the blessings of God that are poured upon me without mixture and without measure every day that I live. I find some people sometimes groan and complain about their prohibitions. Now, I'd recommend you not do that. Uh, certain uh, things are prohibited. Some places are off limits. Some people we dare not sit down with and commune with and fellowship with. But the license we have and the liberty we have in the Lord so far outweighs the prohibition until it's hardly worth making the mention of. So God said, thou shalt not eat of the tree of the knowledge and go of good and evil. For in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now turn to page the verse 18, and the Lord God said, it is not good for man that he should be alone. Now this is a principle that God saw early in the history of the human family. It's not good for man to be alone. It was not good for man to be alone then. Neither is it good for man to be alone today. God plans that a man have a wife. There's no doubt about that. I think the most wonderful relationship in all the world is that. Sometimes you mothers and we dads, we have our children. We're a little bit uh, jealous of them. 
And when they begin to marry off, we resent it. We don't like that. We just don't like that. I, I, the average father doesn't want to give his daughter up. The average mother doesn't want to give her son up. They may reluctantly do so, but they don't shout about it, that's for sure. They'll, they'll do some weeping secretly, to say the least. And down beneath the cover, they wished it wasn't so. And I see Mrs. Whitlock smiling right now, and she knows what I'm talking about. She's having a wedding coming up real soon. And how true that is. That doesn't mean that you don't love the one they're going to marry. And that doesn't mean that you lift your hand to stop them. It just simply means that you love your children in a very peculiar way. But we need to remember that it's God's will that young people marry. And it's never good for a normal man to be alone in this world. And for a man to live a lifetime without a companion is not to live at all. I've known a few selfish men in my life, or heard of them to say the least, that didn't want to be occupied or bothered with a wife. Now a man needs a wife, no question about that. But along with that wife, he must assume the responsibility of a companion and the obligations of a family. And a man that's worth his weight in salt will gladly do that because he knows that the thing that he needs in his life more than anything else is a hep meat and a companion. I hate to think what I'd be were it not for my faithful wife, the source of encouragement she is to me, and my children, the source of encouragement they are to me. They'll never know. My children, my wife, will never know how much they've encouraged me and what a benediction they've been to me in my lifetime. And every dad in this building could say the same thing about your wife and about your children. God saw that it was not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to live by himself. I feel so sorry for men that sometimes death breaks their home. When my mother died, I felt so sorry for my dad. 53 years my father and my mother were married together. And then death came and took them apart and carried my mother to be with the Lord. And I never felt so sorry for a man in my life as I felt for my dad. He looked like he was nearly dead himself. Uh, he couldn't get adjusted. He couldn't be satisfied with anything. He said, he said to me one day, you just don't understand. And I'm not a novice. I'm not a young man. I've had some experience. But I had to admit, that's right, I'm sure I don't understand. I'm sure. I don't understand because I'd never lost my wife. I'd had my wife all these years, but my dad had just recently lost his wife. And he said, you don't understand, son. And I had to admit, you're right. And I don't think any of us could ever understand the loneliness of that hour until it strikes home to you. I feel for a man that loses his wife. I feel for a woman who may lose her husband with the same degree of compassion. It's not good for a man or woman to be alone. It's God's will that man have a wife, a hep meat. And God saw that in the Garden of Eden. So God said, I'm going to make him a hep meat, verse 18. Now here's something I want you to note, verse 19. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air. Now I want to say amen to that. May I say this too to your mothers and dads? If you went home today and got your geography book, for your boy or girl in high school, or your history book, or biology book, that your children study in the grammar school, in the high schools, in the public school system, in those geography books and history books and biology books, they'll tell you that uh, so many millenniums ago that our ancestry was something of a half human being and a half beast. 
They call them the cavemen. And then so many other millenniums back behind that, that their ancestry was a higher cell of some kind of an animal, probably an ape or a monkey. And then further back than that, their ancestry was uh, some kind of a mammal, a fish probably. And then further back than that, millions of years ago, their ancestry crawled out of the mud and the murk and the mire, a one-cell amoeba. And they teach that not as a theory, but as a matter of fact in the public schools. I don't believe a word of that. And yet your boys and girls are bombarded with that kind of atheistic evolution idea in every public school in South Carolina. And the only thing that doesn't keep them uh, being more bombarded is a few Christian teachers in the public schools. And note I said a few, most of them are not Christians. But a few Christian teachers uh, teach the Bible account of the creation of man. But for the most part, the idea of evolution is set forth in the public schools and colleges. As a matter of fact. Now it says the Lord God formed the beast. The Lord God formed the fowls of the air. The Lord God formed man out of the dust of the earth. Now watch what he did. He brought everything that he made to Adam. To see what Adam would call them. Adam had the dignity and the honor of naming all God's creation. Now here's one thing I want you to explain to me. If Adam was a cave man who didn't have a vocabulary. Or if he was a high uh, uh, stage uh, ape or monkey uh, that couldn't write his name and didn't know, a, didn't have a name in fact. And if he wanted to express himself, he drew pictures on the wall of his cave. Or if he wanted something, he'd point and grunt. Or if he wanted something bad enough, he'd take it by force. Or if he had to kill to take it. If that's what man was millenniums ago, then tell me how in the world could Adam name the things that God made, the beast and the fowls of the air? No, no. I'm convinced that the first man, Adam, had a vocabulary just like you have and I have and had the ability to do what God allowed him to do, to name everything God created. One day Adam stood on the side of the meadow and God allowed these beasts to come by male and female. Here's a horse, male and female. Adam said horse. God said, that's fine. That's the name. Here's cow, male and female. Adam said cow. God said, that's fine. That's the name. And uh, on down the line, every animal you can think of, Adam named it. Here comes the mighty eagle, male and female. Adam said, that's the eagle. God said, that's it. Here's a little sparrow, male and female. Adam said sparrow. God said, that's fine. That's the name. He named everything God made. Preacher, my intellect will not let me believe that. Well, now, my friend, I don't have any difficulty believing that. Well, I just can't believe that. Well, you just don't believe the Bible then. Why don't you call yourself an infidel? You say, well, I can be a Christian and not believe that. No, you can't. You can't be a Christian and not believe anything in the Bible. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. You come up with your idea you don't believe. You disqualify yourself. You admit that you're not saved. Yes, sir. Adam named everything God made. And whatever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. Verse 20. And Adam gave name to all the cattle and all the fowls of the air and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a help meet for him. Now here's something I want you to know. In this tremendous drama and spectacle, Adam for the first time saw what companionship was. 
and fellowship was. He was the only man in the world. I want to say that again. Adam at this time was the only man in the world. There was no woman. There was no other man, just Adam. And when he saw the animals come by male and female, he saw that fellowship and companionship that he had never enjoyed in his life. When he saw the sparrows come by and the eagle come by male and female, he saw that fellowship and companionship that he had never seen in his life. And God saw an incompleteness in his creation. Not an imperfection, but an incompleteness. And that's why God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to do something about it. I will make for Adam a helpmeet. Now what did God do? The Lord God, verse 21, caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. This is the first surgery. God put the patient to sleep and laid him there on the green grass. And then it says that God took one of his ribs, opened up his side, took a rib out, and closed up the flesh instead thereof. Now, wait a minute, preacher. You're asking me to believe that? Well, I'm not asking you to believe it, my friend. You just do. Just like I do. Is that so impossible? Why can't you believe that? How many of you have ever had an operation performed during, let's see your hand? Sure you have. Many of you have had some part of your body removed. Sure you have. Many people. Well, now, God could do that if you wanted to do that to Adam. And so God caused Adam to go to sleep. God opened his side, closed up the flesh, but he took a rib out of the side of Adam. And we're told the rib, verse 22, which the Lord God taken from man, made he a woman and brought her to the man. Woman formed from the side of Adam. The bride taken from the side of Adam. And God out of that rib formed. Now God created man out of the dust of the earth, out of nothing. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. But God formed the bride from the side of the first Adam. And when he had formed the woman, I believe she was the most beautiful woman that has ever lived. The most perfect woman that has ever lived was Eve. And God formed the woman, brought her and stood at the feet of Adam. And Adam opened his eyes and said in verse 23, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. She shall be called Ishai. The word in the Hebrew means lover. She is my lover. She's going to fill this void and this vacancy that I now feel. And I'll have someone with whom I can companion. I'll have someone who shall love me and whom I can love. I can have one with whom I can have intimate fellowship. And God stood the woman at the feet of Adam, and Adam opened his eyes and exclaimed, She's bone of my bone, and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be my lover. And then in verse 24, he makes a statement that could have easily been found in Romans 12. He said, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Now, if I had one word of admonition, and time is running away, I just won't get through it. I wanted to preach this sermon uh, in its entirety in the hour if I could. But if I had one admonition I'd like to make to this congregation, it'd be that verse. No home can be happy who does not take literally what Adam said in that verse. Before you can have a happy home, you're going to have to say goodbye, mama, and goodbye, daddy. How many young people have had their homes disturbed because they run home and cry on mama's shoulder, or they run home and try to get daddy to side up with them. And they, they are, and sometimes a daddy and mother meddle into the fears, into the domestic problems of their children's home. That ought not to be so. No home can be happy until the child says goodbye, mama, 
goodbye daddy. Now I don't mean by that that you're to hate your mother and hate your daddy. But comparatively speaking, that's what it amounts to. Now my dad's still living and I respect him. I admire him. I love him as a dad. I say to him yet, yes sir, no sir. I'd never say what to my dad. I say yes sir, what sir, what? Uh, no sir to my dad. I'd never say what. I respect him. But suppose my dad were to call me today and say, now son, you've been married to your wife for a long time and I don't think she's the right person for you. And I think it's time for you to get rid of your wife. And so and so and he going and on uh, messing into my home life and trying to break up my family. He'd never do that. He never has done that. He would never do that. But I'm just using this as an illustration. If he were to do that, I'd say, now dad, I respect you and you're my dad and I admire you and will always admire you and always love you, but that's none of your business. You let me alone. And if I had to make up my mind between my wife and my dad, if I had to make a decision right now between my wife and my dad, I don't. My wife and my dad get along fine together and always have. But if I had to make a decision between my wife and my dad, the decision is already made. I wouldn't have to think that long. I'd say to my dad, you go your way. I'm cleaving to my wife until I die. And you'll never have a happy home until you have the same philosophy. Cleave to your wife. Hold on to your wife. Hold on to your husband. Don't you let anybody disturb your matrimonial relationship. And a daddy or mother that'll meddle in the affairs of their children is playing with trouble as sure as you're born. And a, 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 a wife or a husband that'll go home and cry on daddy's shoulder or mama's shoulder, you're doing a dangerous thing. Work out your own problems. Cleave to one another in the Lord. Now verse 25, and they were both naked. This is a dispensation the theologians call the dispensation of innocency. Man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. They were both naked. Now watch this. Adam was formed right at this point. He lived 930 years all total. He lived a number of years by himself in the garden without a woman. He was created here. He lived a hundred years. How do you know, preacher? Well, I don't. Nobody knows for sure how long Adam lived before Eve was formed. It might have been ten years. I wouldn't argue with you. There is a period of time between the creation of man and the formation of the bride. Adam was created here. He had 930 years to play on. He lived a hundred years in the garden by himself, we'll say. And at this point, God formed a bride and gave him a bride. And then we'll imagine they lived together, husband and wife, in perfect innocency and sinlessness for another 100 years. That only put them 200 years old and they lived to be 930. So they lived another 100 years by themselves in the garden, just the two of them, and they were both naked and not ashamed. Innocency, perfect sinlessness. Adam and his wife lived in. Now we can't enter into that because our bodies are depraved and sinful. But that's the state of Adam and the state of Eve before you get to chapter number 3. Now enters the devil. Chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And the devil came to Eve. You have a man alone in chapter 2. You've got a woman alone in chapter 3. And the devil said three things to the woman. Number one, hath God said, he questioned the word of God. Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden, hath God said. 
And the devil down through the years always begins every attack that he makes against anybody by first questioning the word of God. Second, the woman made the mistake of answering the devil. And she said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Do you know two mistakes that Eve made? Number one, she said, neither shall you touch it. God had not said that. She added that. And then second, she said, lest you die. God did not say that. God said, thou shalt surely die. I've never known of a woman who wouldn't twist, uh, wrestle the scriptures and mess up the scriptures if you let her alone without a man to instruct her. Uh, that's why I wouldn't want to uh, serve under a woman pastor. I've never known of a woman preacher that believed the truth. Every woman preacher I've ever heard of in my life believes in falling from grace and two or three works of grace and sinner's perfection and speaking in tongues and a lot of other things that's not taught in the Bible. She fouled it up, didn't she? Lest you die, not lest you die, you shall surely die, said God. But Eve fouled it up. And then the devil made the second statement in verse 4. He said, ye shall not surely die. He first said, hath God said, second, ye shall not surely die. Uh, he was the first man to invent purgatory, the devil. Uh, he was the first one to say uh, that uh, God's a loving God. He'd send nobody to hell. Uh, he air-conditioned hell, the devil did. You really won't die. God loves everybody. And ultimately, everybody will go to heaven. That's what some people believe. Seventh-day Adventist people believe in what they call soul annihilation. Bible doesn't teach that. And the Catholics believe in what they call purgatory. Not a word in the Bible about purgatory. Right. Herbert W. Armstrong believes in the foolish idea that the grave is hell. And the Jehovah Witnesses believe the same thing. No, no truth in that. All that started from the devil. The devil said, ye shall not surely die. He's the originator of the idea of air conditioning hell. No hell theory came from the devil. You're not going to die. And then the third thing the devil said... He says, if you'll eat that fruit, you can become his gods and you won't need a god. You can be a god yourself and save yourself by lifting yourself by your own bootstraps. He taught salvation by self-attainment. And a lot of people still teaching that right down through the years, aren't they? So here's the three points of the devil's first sermon. He still says those three same things right down through the years. Now verse 6. And when the woman saw three things, that the tree was good for food, the lust of the flesh... And that it was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eye. And a tree to be desired to make one wise, the pride of life. Those are the three avenues through which the devil attacks every person that's ever lived, even the Lord, in Matthew 4. And they always come in the same order. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, pride of life. And I believe those three avenues of temptation are progressive in your life. In young life, 18, 20, the great battleground is the lust of the flesh. Teens and twenties, lust of the flesh. That's why you have the dope culture with young people, the lust of the flesh. When you reach my age, middle life, past middle life, the battlefield is no longer the lust of the flesh, but the lust of the eye. That's my battle at my age. Now, if I live to be an old man, the battlefield will be neither the lust of the flesh nor the lust of the eye, but the pride of life, security, prestige, recognition. Who'll take care of me? Holding on to every straw that might be offered to me. The pride of life. Now the devil's got a temptation to bring to you, whether you're a young person 
a middle-aged person, an older person, will never exempt from the attack of the devil. And it's good for you to remember that. Now, when she saw this fruit, good for the flesh, pleasant to the eye, good to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate it. And the moment she took that fruit and ate it, she did two things she had never done before. She blushed. Every naked person would. And second, she tried to cover her nakedness. And she had never done either of these in all the years she had been with Adam. They lived in perfect sinlessness. But the moment she fell and committed sin, she blushed and tried to cover her nakedness. And now Adam walks on this, onto the scene. And when Adam saw his wife, he didn't say what's happened. He knew exactly what had happened. He had never seen his wife flush and blush. He had never seen his wife hide her nakedness. But when he saw Eve on this occasion, he saw both of those. And he knew that his wife had been beguiled by the devil. And he walked up to Eve and said, give me the fruit. And she gave it to him. And he, with his eyes open, deliberately, voluntarily, knowing what he was doing, ate it. And fell with her. Now the Bible is clear that Eve was beguiled. Adam was not. 1 Timothy 2.14. Clear as it can be. Adam took that fruit deliberately and voluntarily. Now that brings me to the big question. Why did Adam take that fruit? Why did he do it? Why? Well let me give three negative reasons. First. He did not take that fruit because he didn't know the command. God spelled the command out and said, Adam, of the tree in the midst of the garden of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat that. And if you do, thou shalt surely die. He knew the command clearly. He could not plead ignorance. In fact, the only way Eve knew the command was from the lip of Adam. But Adam knew firsthand the prohibition. Don't you eat that fruit. You shall surely die if you do. He could not plead ignorance. Second, he knew the penalty involved. When he ate that fruit, he knew that he'd die spiritually. And yet he ate it deliberately, knowing that he was going to die and pay the penalty. He could not plead ignorance at that point. He ate that fruit with his eyes open, knowing that the penalty involved was spiritual death. And yet he ate it. And third, he didn't eat that fruit because he could not have said no. Some of you in this building have faced the devil in temptation and you said, I'll not do it. And you've got a depraved body and yet God gave you grace to resist the devil in a depraved body. Don't you think Adam could have done the same thing? Sure. He could have taken his wife by the hand, led her to the gate of the garden and driven out and said, I never want to see you again. But he didn't do that. He said, give me the fruit. And he took the fruit and ate it. When he could have said no, when he could have done otherwise, he took the fruit and ate it and fell and sinned like his wife Eve. Now those are three negative things. Now I come to three very positive, precious things that I want to say to you as to why Adam took that fruit. Why Adam fell. It had to have been deliberate. He was not deceived. The Bible tells me that. He had enough grace to have said no. You have that kind of grace. Adam had that kind of grace. He lived in a perfect environment. He lived in a sinless body. And you have neither. You don't have a sinless body, nor do you have a perfect environment. And sometimes you successfully resist the devil. Adam could have done the same, but he didn't. He could have said no, but he didn't. 
Now, why did he take that fruit first? He took that fruit because he loved his bride more than life. He said, I'd rather be dead. I'd rather be numbered with her in her fall. I'd rather be identified with her in her fall than to live in this earthly paradise without my bride. I love her so much until I'd rather be under the judgment and the indictment of a holy God than to live in this paradise without my bride. May I report to you that one time back in the corridors of history, the Lord Jesus looked down upon the age in which you and I now live and foreknew a bride for his name's sake and said, Holy Father, I want that bride in heaven. And if the only way that bride can be made justified and sanctified and cleared of her guilt so that she can come to heaven is for me to go down into suffering to bleed and die, then I'm willing to go down into the world and take upon myself the curse of sin and the suffering of a frail body and pay the sin debt so that my bride, foreknowing God's mind from the foundation of the world, can come to heaven and be saved from the guilt of sin. Oh, what love that is. That God loved me so much and that the Holy Son of God loved me so much until he was willing, though he knew no sin, to become sin. Though he is life yet to allow himself to die. Though he had committed no transgression yet to receive in his body the full execution of the judgment of God upon himself that I might go free. I stand amazed and appalled that God would love me that much. That's how much Adam loved Eve. I'd rather die than to live without my bride. He loved his bride more than life. Oh, what love. We preach that, we sing that, we talk that, we shout that, we rely upon that, we revel in that, we rejoice in that kind of love that God loved us. Second, Adam took that fruit because he knew that it was the only way that he could have a fellowship with his bride again. His bride had fallen. His bride was blushing. His bride was trying to cover her nakedness. How in the world can a holy man walk with a woman that's fallen and depraved? How can a man that's never committed a sin having a communion with a person who's a sinner? There'd be no way in the world that Eve could ever be his helpmate again. There'd be no way in the world that he could ever sit down with his bride again and have communion and fellowship with his bride. Now that she's fallen, she's been beguiled, she's deceived, she's a sinner. And there could be no fellowship between she and Adam. Now she couldn't lift herself. If there's any reconciliation, he had to condescend to her lowest state. That's exactly what the Christ of God did for me and you. As a young preacher years ago, I used to read in the New Testament what the Bible called Jesus, Son of Man. I discovered that 87 times in the New Testament, Jesus is called Son of Man. And I'd say to myself, why did the King James Bible choose to call Jesus Son of Man? But I found out later that the King James is literally translating what the apostles had written down. And I discovered later that he is the Son of Man. He's the God-man. He's the son of man. 
in that though he's all God, he chose to be formed in the womb of a virgin and to be birthed in this earth like any other child and to live in this earth as any other man and to suffer and to bleed and die on the cross. Touched with the feelings of my infirmities, tempted in every point like as I am. When I'm weary, Jesus says, son, I was weary one time and sat on Jacob's well. When I'm hungry, he says, son, I was hungry one time. I ate the corn out of the field. When I'm persecuted, he said, son, they call me a wine bibber. They persecuted me also. Yeah. When I'm rejected of men, they say, he says, uh, they rejected me also. He was tempted in every point as I am and yet without sin. Therefore, Hebrews 2.14, he's able to succor you and I that are tried and tested in the way. He knows my frame. He can fellowship with me. He can fall in step with me. And I can fall in step with him and walk with the king because he came down. I couldn't go up, but he came down to walk with me and to fellowship with me. And Adam says, give me the fruit. And he ate the fruit and fell so that he could fellowship with his bride and feel with his bride and suffer with his bride. And understand with his bride. Oh, what a faithful high priest we've got. At the right hand of the throne of God on high. Any temptation, any test you've ever had in your life. You need not fret to carry that to the Lord. Because our Savior was tempted in that same point. And he understands my frame better than any person in the world. Third, last but not least. He took that forbidden fruit. Because he knew that it was God's way to redeem his lost bride. He was theologian enough to know that down the road, that woman would have a baby. And then she'd have another baby and another, another, another. And down through the years, her seed would produce the seed, the Son of Man. And that seed that was going to come would give his life upon the cross to redeem Eve and also to redeem Adam and all their children in his precious blood. Had he taken the woman and driven out of the garden... There would have been no seed. There would have been no redemption. There would have been no Savior. God's plan was that the seed come through the woman. And he had to join himself to that woman in order to produce a seed that would become the Savior of all the world. And so Adam said, give me the fruit. And he ate it and knew his wife and she conceived. The old devil watching that spectacle was jumping up and down with glee. And God said, devil, before you leave the garden, chapter 3, verse 15, he said, you think you've got the victory, but I'd like to remind you, Satan, that the time shall come when the seed of this woman whom thou hast beguiled shall bruise your head. And I imagine the old devil said, I can handle anything she can produce. I'm not worried. I handle her, and I handle Adam, and I can handle any of their children. Oh, but I want to report to you, there was one child he could not handle. 2,000 years ago, that woman brought a child into the world whose name was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And the devil couldn't handle him, brother. He bruised the serpent's head when he died upon the cross. 
when he died upon the cross, he made a way to save Mother Eve by his own blood. And he made a way to save the first Adam by his own blood. And he made a way to save me and you by his own blood. And Adam knew that, that when the time would come in the dispensation of the fullness of time, that seed that he started in Eden would one day arrive in Gethsemane and then walk from Gethsemane to Calvary and do the work of destroying the devil who had the power of death. And I want to report to you that the devil is totally defeated and the devil is a has-been. He's a roaring lion, but he's more of a roar than anything else. And thank you, Brother McCombs. Help yourself. He's more of a roar than anything else. His power's broken. And it was broken by the Savior, who is the seed of the first woman Eve. The devil don't like me to say that. He wants me to be afraid. The devil wants me to be a coward. The devil wants me to think that God will forget about me. And the devil wants me to think that I won't make it in. But brother, I've read the last chapter in that precious old book. And I know the outcome of this episode. And I know we're on the winning side. And we're going to make it in to God's heaven someday. And owe everything that I've got to the work of Jesus upon the cross. The seed of the woman is my Lord and my Redeemer. The Savior of Calvary. That's the fall of Adam. The first man, Adam, a type of the second Adam, the Lord Jesus. Let's bow our heads and pray. We thank you for listening to the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen and join us next time on the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast.